Glad that you uh, joined with us. At our campus here, we're getting ready to uh, pass the offering buckets for our service, wherever those people are. <clears throat> Somewhere. Because I was told there were. <laughs> they lied to me. Uh, well, Bob, you figure it out. What? Do it as you walk out. Block all the doors except for one. So uh, anyway, and I know that our other campuses have offerings. It's very simple. Done at the other campuses. And if you're online, let me encourage you. Go to our website, celebrationchurch.tv, and contribute as well. Bless back financially and the blessings that you're getting spiritually. That's what the Bible teaches us. We are in the uh, letter of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. We are in the eighth chapter. And now we're going to pick it up here and continue on. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. We ask you for wisdom and understanding, insight into your word. Let it just come alive, powerful. Lord, it's more than just words on a page, but it's anointed by your Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit that gives life. We pray that you just fill all of the listeners tonight with the life of God as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said. Amen. All right, so now we are in Romans, the eighth chapter, where we're at, uh, we just finished with chapter seven. Break it up so that we can follow it later. By the way, don't let this turn into a sauna again. It's already warm. What? I was like sweating like a pig. Yeah, it's really cold here in Wisconsin right now, major deep throw. At least you got coffee and stuff. If it keeps up, we're going to have to start putting, you know, brandy shots in as well. But uh, so it's just anything. <laughs> I, I can feel the heat already coming on me. But uh, so anyway, chapter seven of the letter, again, not originally written in chapters. It's just they break it up so you can find out where to look at it. Paul was talking about the struggle, the struggle of being in a position where what you want to do, the good things you want to do, you don't do. And the bad things you don't want to do, that's what you do. A lot of argument, even debate to this day in Christianity among those who say, well, this is the normal Christian experience and thank God for grace. I say this is not what he's saying is the normal Christian experience, but rather the Christian experience outside of Christ because at the very end, he says, who will deliver me from this? He says, thank God through Jesus Christ. And then in chapter eight, right away, he picks up. Again, there weren't chapters. Remember, he keeps writing. He says that uh, there's no condemnation. There's now not any condemnation to those who are in Christ who don't walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. And he goes in this whole explanation that if you walk according to the spirit, you won't fulfill the laws of the flesh. In other words, if you walk as spiritually attuned as we should, you're not going to be in this awful situation to keep doing things you shouldn't do and not able to do things you should. And and that's just a defeated uh, spiritual life. So I'm among those who do not believe that's the normal Christian experience. <laughs> what kind of normal Christian experience is that? But uh, anyway, so we're going to pick it up at uh, verse 12 now of chapter 8. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, he's not talking about physically dying. We're all going to physically die. It's talking about your life will be filled with death and spiritual death. And in general, your life will stink. And one thing's for sure. Christians who are following Christ but yet don't live by the Spirit or constantly have their heads in carnal ways. You know, the Bible talks about being uh, spiritually minded versus carnally minded. Carnal is from the word carne, which means flesh or meat, like chili con carne. All right, carnally minded. Carnally minded and, and the head, talking about your head, carnal head. So he's saying, don't be a meathead is what he's trying to say. If, if you're going to be a meathead and just get caught up in all the things of this world at all times and thinking about the things of everything, everyday life and let it slowly, slowly suck the life out of you, you're going to be walking in a state of death. Your life is going to stink and you are going to struggle. If, on the other hand, if you will intentionally live by the Spirit, have your mind in spiritual things, it will bring you life, okay? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, which is how you put to death the misdeeds of the body, if you're struggling with sin, oh, pastor, I keep trying, I keep trying. I keep, no, you're not supposed to be trying. You should need to live according to the Spirit. If you'll get your head in spiritual things, you'll quit doing the things you shouldn't be doing, all right? If you'll do that, then you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Uh, And by him we cry, Abba, 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 which is what the uh, little children would say. They don't actually translate it. They put in the word Abba, and then they translate it right after the word Abba, Father. Father. It's what little kids would say to their daddies. Like we say, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. They go, Abba, 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 Abba. So we are children of God. It's a very intimate word, which is different than praying, Oh, thou most holy, gracious Father. Up 18 gazillion miles away, please don't kill us all, even though we deserve it. You know, that's, you know, that's not the way we should be praying. We should be praying, Abba, Daddy, okay? Much more intimate. God is close. He's not a million miles away. He's right here with us. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. So, uh, so we are children of God, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, this is what's really interesting. This is why we talk about, as Christians, if you're born a Christian, you know it. You know that you know, in your knower, that you know it. <laughs> and it's hard to describe it. And people who don't know it look at you like, what? Well, do you really know? Well, I hope so, right? That's what they say to you. You know, do you know Jesus? Oh, I hope so. Are you going to heaven? Oh, I hope so. That, that's not, if you're in the hope so category, you don't get this. There is something that happens when you truly experience this faith where you, the spirit of God comes into you and you can tell there's something different on the inside of you. You are changed. The spirit of God is in you and that spirit that's in you is what's telling you you are now a true child of God, all right? It's that spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So this idea of heirship, what he's talking about is, you know, who's really rich? Donald Trump. (laughs) He's really rich, or Bill Gates or something like that. Uh, If you become an heir of the Trump family, this is a good thing. (laughs) means you don't worry about rent anymore, okay? If you're an heir of, you know, uh, some wealthy family, uh, you are now set for life because what is theirs at some level is yours, right? You're part of the family. You know, it's like when family comes over to my house, you know, you don't have to ask permission if you can go in the refrigerator. You just do it. What you got to eat? You know, because you're a family. Now, if you did that, that would be very creepy, all right? Because you're not one of our family, or you are very familiar with me one way or the other. But uh, generally speaking, family, you know, it, there's a whole different thing that kicks in, right? You're, you're, you're there. And what he's trying to say is we are, when you, when you experience this and you start to understand that you are a child of God, what, that, does, that doesn't mean that you're a child of God from a million miles away, and that's nice that you're a child of God, but don't get too close. No, you are a child of God. You become an heir of God. You become a joint heir with Christ. You are, boom, part of this incredible thing that is happening, uh, to the point that even angels, if they had the chance, uh, I believe something along those lines is taught in Hebrews, would swap places with you. I mean, this is, you know, it doesn't feel like that here, because we still live in this stinking world with all the challenges and frustrations and temptations and stuff. But what happens when we are born again is a dramatic thing. And I promise you, this is one of the reasons that Satan hates you so much. And the devil will do anything he can to mess you up, to trip you up, because he cannot stand you. Because you are now one of the heirs of the kingdom. Hallelujah. It's a nice thing to have, right? And he talks about sharing in the sufferings, so we can also share in, in, in Christ's glory and then he starts talking a little about the sufferings. Now, in uh, Western Christianity, it's hard to really relate to what they were going through. If you were, for example, in Iraq today, in ISIS-held territory, you know exactly what he's talking about, okay? These people suffer the loss of all things, uh, many of them of their very uh, livelihood or seeing their children uh, brutalized. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing. The people who are standing for God they get uh, brutalized just because of their faith. And this was the time where this was happening to a lot of Christians. So when he starts talking about these sufferings, now the reality is 
even in America, there's still a degree of suffering that happens as a result of being a Christian. You're ostracized, uh, friends that you know, think you're creepy because you're religious or your family gives you a hard time because you go to that weird church up on the hill or whatever the deal is. Uh, you know, and it might hurt. I mean, at some point, people, you know, will not get uh, promotions at work just because of who you are. It depends on the company. Some companies actually like very religiously devout people. It's true because they know them to be very, very honest. But some countries, they're basically slime balls. And if, if uh, their version of doing business is to cut someone else's throat to get whatever they can, and you're one of these devout Christians, you won't get very far in that company because they know you don't share that value of saying whatever you got to say, do whatever you got to do. So it'll, it'll cost you that way. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that uh, you can be humiliated or attacked or stuff because of your faith even here. So that's, that's about the max of the sufferings that we have, you know, there might be some that would, you know, even get meaner, I don't know. It's pretty rare here, it just, it is. Uh, but even the slightest of sufferings, all that is because we identify with Christ in a world that hates Christ. Uh, we see parts of it where, you know, there's a culture today where there's a very strong anti-Christian sentiment that we keep fighting against in our culture. And we're hoping that through elections and everything we can fight back, but, you know, uh, for example, for the last several years, to be a Christian has been a bad thing in America, right? You're, uh, you're evil if you're a Christian. They attack Christians, uh, which is very odd. The, these very same people who, who, who don't like Christians love, you know, Muslims. And what's so, usually people very far from the left. They don't like Christianity, but they embrace Muslims. But I think it's so odd because we won't kill you. <laughs> we just disagree with you, which to them is horrible, see? And that way they don't understand if these people really got what they wanted. I'm talking extreme Muslims. My dad was a Muslim, not, not anti-Muslim. But uh, you know, hardcore Islam that they seem to defend, they'll be the first ones they kill <laughs> because they do all the things they disagree with. Very odd. It's like, you notice how sometimes you look at the world, it's like up is down and down is up. Things are crazy right now. So, but anyway, they're attacking us for our faith and they ridicule us for our faith and mock us for our belief in God and hanging on to God and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so that's the minor, the most minor version of suffering that we would experience uh, here in this country. We keep fighting back because if, it, if you don't fight it back, the end result would be they would get very, very nasty towards people of faith. And they might someday, at some point it might you know, become very, very bad, what do you do? You suffer along with it, you know, whatever it is. You know, we're gonna serve Jesus no matter who it separates it from or associates us with, all right? Uh, anyway, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Certainly, it's our case because we don't really suffer that much, but for these people who suffer and for other Christians in the world today who suffer greatly, that's a big deal. They have to actually realize that, you know, our present sufferings, what we're going through right now is nothing compared to the glory that we will receive in the life to come, okay? For the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Okay, so what's he saying? <clears throat> the very creation in which we live is under a curse. Because of who? Us. <laughs> okay, when Adam <clears throat> rebelled against God, uh, mankind rebelled against God. Do you have some water there? Thank you very much. My servant boy, Bob. <laughs> That's Bob's, Bob's main job. Bring me water. Give Bob a hand. <laughs> Those of you watching online, he's actually the executive pastor here, so he's not just the, <clears throat> he's not the water boy. Executive pastor and water boy. We, <clears throat> we combine the two to save money. All right? So, uh, so this curse is on, man, on the earth itself. Uh, what's really amazing is if you go around the world and look at the, it's, it's hard not to be stunned by the glory of God that we see in creation, right? You go to some places, it's stunning to see. What's amazing is when you're looking at that and going, wow, remind yourself, this is the cursed version. <laughs> right? 
I mean, how cool is that? When you see the most beautiful starry sky, this is the cursed version. When you see the most beautiful, you know, uh, sunset, the most beautiful waterfall, the most beautiful landscape that you can possibly imagine some gorgeous places in this world, and I've been to a lot of them. What's amazing is I always remind myself, wow, this is the cursed version. Wait till we get to the uncursed version, all right? So part of this groaning that the earth goes through uh, is it's creation itself can't wait until the redemption of when Jesus comes and, and all this is liberated and, and whatnot. He says, we know that while the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. Uh, so what are you talking about? Would what, you ever feel like that? Like there's this part of <sighs> the groaning experience, you know, through the struggles, through the temptations, through the tests, the trials, and everything else. It can only be summed up in a groan. There's no other word for it. If you ever feel like groaning, welcome. This is normal for you, all right? Groaning is... <laughs> It's part of the normal Christian experience because we know that what we experience isn't right. Okay? Now, if you don't know any different, that's one thing. But when you know the promises of God, the blessings of God, the success God wants to bring in your life, and you're going through Suckville, you groan because you know this is not normal and you're trying to get in a place of faith where you can trust God to bless your life and turn those situations around. So this is the groaning that uh, all believers experience. For in this hope we were saved... But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. So he says, so that we're saved in, in the midst of all this, and we have this hope. But it's not something we can see right away. If you see it, you don't have hope, you know? If you have a car, you don't hope for a car. <laughs> I'll have a car. Now, if you're waiting for a new car, I guess you could hope for that. <laughs> because your present one is awful or something. But you get the idea, right? You don't hope for something you have. You hope for something that you don't have. So we are waiting patiently. It's the glorious, patient hope that we have. And by the way, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about wishing. And a lot of people say, oh, I hope so. Uh, that's actually a perversion of the word. It's, it, the word hope is not, do you think, do you think some, something will happen? Do you think Santa will bring you a toy? Oh, I hope so. That's not the right word of the use of the word hope, actually, even in the dictionary. Hope is not I wish, because it's turning into I wish the way people use it today. Hope has always meant, traditionally, in the English language, if you look it up, it's an a, a re absolute reassurance that you will get something that you are waiting for. That's what hope is, okay? I have, that's why we have a glorious hope. As Christians, we're waiting for what's coming next. We have this wonderful hope. We know, even in prayer, where you commit something to God and you know, you just know something clicks inside you, you know God heard you, and you just know the answer is coming. You are now in a state of hope, okay? That's how you know you're in faith. It's like many years ago. I remember we were in a Decatur, Illinois, which is, you ever been to Decatur, Illinois? It's like the, oh, did you really? I know, it's like the armpit of Illinois, right? It, it reeketh. The whole thing smells like one big armpit. It's just, that hasn't been washed in quite some time. Uh, about the next closest to, you know, we, of course, we talk about it. All you got to do is go to Kakana or something like that. We have our own, we have our own versions of smells around here. But that, that is more putrid, I want to vomit kind of thing. But, but the smell coming out of Decatur is more like, man, hasn't somebody washed in a while? Is what it is. It's the soybeans that are being cooked out of Staley and, and all these places, uh, ADM and stuff. So the whole city just covered with it. <laughs> so they say you get used to it. I never did. Anyway, so... Uh, so anyway, Decatur, Illinois, and I remember uh, we were in a situation, you know, where we didn't have any money, and I needed like $150, and at the time, you know, that was like a gazillion dollars, you know, you're broke, you know, most of us have been there at some time, some of you are there currently, <laughs> where, you know, even the smallest amount of money, it might as well be a million, right? You know, I need $300. What am I supposed to be? A million, because I don't have to, you know, I have no way of getting $300. So anyway, you're like, we're just totally stressed. Ah, because I need this $150. I got these bills. I don't know how I'm going to pay it. Oh, the world's coming to an end. So uh, what I did is what I would do in a situation like that. I called mom. <laughs> you know, very young at the time. Mom, what? I need 150 bucks. Oh, calm down. I'll send it to you. All right. As soon as she told me she sent it to me, 
I immediately calmed down. Immediately. Uh, did I have the money yet? No. Had anything changed yet? No. The next day I went to the mailbox. This was before FedEx, you know. You actually had to wait through the mail. Days, days, days. Uh, and and, and uh, nothing happened the next day. Nothing happened the next day. Eventually it showed up. But the whole time, I'm in the absolute state of peace now. Just because she said, I was filled with a, a hope. Because I knew it was on the way. In a d- real degree of faith, when you really pray to a place where you're really what we call breaking through in prayer, where somehow, you know, just by the Holy Spirit, something clicks, you're praying and you know God has heard your prayer and the answer's on its way, uh, you know, peace comes, even though nothing's changed yet. That's why we as Christians can walk in peace, even though our circumstances are bad still. Why are you happy? Well, because I'm, I believe I'm filled with hope. I believe it's going to change. Well, right now everything's terrible. Yep. <laughs> Well, why are you happy? Because <laughs> I think the, it's in the mail, right? It's in the mail. And I promise you, God's a lot more faithful than mom, right? Moms can forget. God doesn't forget. So, so, uh, so anyway, this is, this is what this wonderful hope is that we have. And we wait patiently for it, but it's not like, ah, uh, waiting. You know, what are you going to do waiting? It's calm, patient, peaceful. It's all good, waiting. That's when you know you're in a good place in faith. So in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us through wordless groans. What is he talking about? Nobody really knows. All right? A Pentecostals will say that means speaking in tongues. No, it's not speaking in tongues because it's wordless. There's no words being spoken. Speaking in tongues, you speak words, okay? In another tongue, whatever, like that. These are groans, the Spirit does. What does that mean? I don't know. What it means is the Holy Spirit that's surrounding you groans right along with you. I'm sure sometimes I'm the cause of the groan. (laughs) Holy Spirit looks at me going, (laughs) but he intercedes for us and prays for us. I mean, that's kind of a cool thing, right? All right? Uh, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now they'll say, well, that's speaking in tongues. Well, maybe, I don't know. All I know, the context here is about the Spirit groaning for us in intercession, which is encouraging, although we're not really quite sure what that means. It's okay, we don't need to know what it means. We can trust in God. And it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. That's an interesting verse of scripture. What it's not saying is that everything that happens to you is God's plan. Okay? You have to understand, I mean, people really have a hard time understanding this. It's stunning to me how many people, even very devout Christian people, think that everything that happens is God. It's not. So-and-so was in a car wreck. Why would God do that? God didn't do it. He drove too fast. Somebody, you know what I'm saying? It's like if you're walking in the dark and you trip over, you know, the kid's wagon and you bust your nose hitting the floor. Why did God do that? God didn't do that. Your stupid kid left the wagon out and you should have turned on the light. Now, what it is saying is that no matter what happens to you, we know that in all things, everybody say all things. All things God works for the good to those who love him. God can take whatever situation you're in and work it toward your good. And God can use all kinds of situations. Sometimes the worst things that happen to you, God can use for the greatest of his glory. And you got lots of testimonies like that. Something terrible happened to you and then something wonderful happened as a result. You mean, you were able to lead somebody to Jesus because you went to the emergency room and, you know, you talk to this nurse who starts crying because her life's so miserable and you can share Jesus with her and she, you know, who knows what happens, right? And then people say, oh, I knew God did this to me for a reason. I doubt that. I don't think that God goes around breaking people's nose to accomplish things. <laughs> what I do believe is God can look at any situation and immediately calculate the best outcome. It's like a supercomputer, <laughs> right? Something happens to you, here's a good outcome, okay? God can always turn whatever situation you're going through, even if it's bad. You know, sometimes people, you know, something horrible, someone will die in an accident, but yet at the end, they have this incredible story that has changed so many people's lives. 
Well, I don't think God went out and killed somebody for that. What it means is God can take whatever happens to you and use it for his glory, which means we should walk in faith, right? And trust God, because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Okay, now, we're about to get in the part of Romans that I groan. Now I'm groaning. Because I don't, I don't like this part. And it's several chapters. And, uh, and uh, let me tell you, I, I, I've looked forward to this about as much as a man my age looks forward to his annual prostate exam. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I knew it was coming. I know it, you know, I know it's there. And now we are here, and I've been groaning all day. Going, all right. Uh, let me read a little bit of you and then explain my groaning. All right. Uh, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is where we get the doctrine of predestination, which is mean God knows things in advance, has already set certain things are going to happen in advance. They are predestined, all right? Now, there's... And I'm not going to do, there's two versions of this, and I'm not going to do justice to either one because, quite frankly, I don't care. Okay, I just think it's one of the dumbest arguments Christians have. But it's this argument between Calvinism and Arminianism. And for those of you who have no idea, let me opine upon the two. Calvinism, John Calvin in the early 1500s, whatever, comes up with this doctrine that everything that happens is already set in stone. That everybody who gets saved has already been predestined to save. In other words, you're born already marked to be saved or go to hell, and there's nothing you can do about it. All right? That is the hardcore. Now, some Calvinists may not appreciate my interpretation of it. Again, I don't care. I'm just giving you the ballpark version. And there's, and there's all kinds of shades of gray in that. All right, but that all of this is predestined and it's going to happen and there's nothing you can do and it's just everything that happens has already been set up and it just, it is what it is. It's all been predestined and, uh, and uh, Arminius uh, came along uh, a little bit later. Actually, he was a disciple of Calvinism. He was a Calvinist. Uh, he was actually taught by, I think it was John Calvin's uh, son-in-law uh, in Calvinism. And it wasn't until later he started studying. And interestingly enough, it was his study of the book of Romans that brought him to the conclusion, nah, that's not the way this stuff is. And so then you have uh, this big debate over, you know, Calvinism is, or Armenium is more about its free will. Uh, see, a Calvinist basically, and if I don't get this right, if you're a Calvinist, we have all kinds of people here. All right, peace. Uh, a Calvinist basically believes, at least it, hardcore Calvinism, and again, there's so many versions of it. That's why it's, you know, you can get so many different. In fact, most Christians share a variety of both viewpoints. Anyway, Calvinism basically believes Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He just died for those that were predestined to be saved so that everybody who gets saved was already, that's who Christ died for. Arminianism believes, no, Jesus died for the entire world, and it's your choice to choose that or to reject it. Most of people in our church, and again, there's thousands who watch this all over the world, so I'm sure there's a lot of Calvinists who watch it, and if I don't get your version right, don't, don't write me. I don't want to hear it, okay? I said, peace, okay? We're cool with that here. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> what was I saying? I mean, yeah, yeah. so the, the, Jesus died for all so that there's this free will. So here's, here's the deal. Um, most of the people here fall into the Armenian mentality because Arminius really didn't bring up a new concept. This concept was, goes way back. It was really Calvin who came up with the new version of, of this thought because if you go back and the way you check it is check with Catholicism because they go way back have always believed in the whole role of free will 
and that you choose to follow God. And if you follow God, you know, you make it. If you reject him, you won't, basically. So most of the people in our church uh, here in Wisconsin, because your backgrounds are from Catholicism and Lutheranism and stuff like that, already the vast majority fall into the category of Armenianism. So there's not a real thing. We do have a lot of people in our church. Well, I don't know how many, but there's, there are people in our church who were raised as Calvinists who now come to this church. And we have no problem with that. We, our church, we don't argue over the fine points of doctrine. All right? Uh, again, in my version, or my, my understanding of it, I, I just think it's an absurd argument. I don't know why Christians have it. But most of Christianity today is divided along those two lines. If you're going to use a very broad stroke, it's, it's our closest version to, uh, you know, Sunni and, what's the other version of Islam? Shiite. Except we don't kill each other. We used to. Believe it or not. You know, Calvin, he roasted some guy at the stake, and by the, you know, back in those days, everybody would kill each other if they didn't agree with each other. You know, wow. But uh, that's way in the rearview mirror. And, uh, but anyway, uh, we don't kill each other, all that kind of stuff, and it's not that major of a deal. But there's really those two lines of thought, and there's all kinds of versions of it. My problem, personally, and why I lean more on the Armenian side of it although not entirely, and I'll explain in just a minute, is that if, because here, here's the hardcore version of, of, of Calvinism. Uh, you ask Jesus into your heart, and now that you've asked Jesus, it was already preordained, you were preordained to get saved, and there's nothing you can do to get unsaved. Uh, you could go out and become an axe murderer and rape every cat and dog in town, and you're still gonna go to heaven, all right? Uh, now, there's people who would argue who believe in that, no, no, if he really rapes cats and dogs, that doesn't mean he wasn't really saved on the first one. So it becomes a matter of semantics, who really was and who really wasn't, right? And, uh, but, you know, nothing you can do, you can't lose your salvation, you're set. Armenianism will say, hey, you need to take this seriously because you could lose out, which is where most of us think we need to take our faith seriously because we don't want to miss out. Calvinists would think that line of thinking is horrifying. How could you live thinking you're going to lose your salvation? I mean, it's not like we're going to drop it on the ground and lose it, you know? It's, it's, it's like, you know, if, if, if you, it's in the wash. Where'd my salvation go, okay? That's not the way we live. And, and the Bible talks about walking in the fear of God. And even Paul, as we get to in a minute, now in a minute, he, we're going to go through this. And he's going to really talk pretty strong from this predestined point of view. Uh, but then he follows it right up with saying, you need to be careful lest you're cut out of salvation. So you see, what, both are right there, you know, and it just, like I said, it just gives me a headache, and I go, oh, as I groan about this. The reason why, let's say I'm wrong. Let's say that, yeah, once you get saved, there's nothing that could ever happen to you, and you're automatically going to get saved, and I encourage you to be as devout as you can, and in the end, you find out it didn't really matter, you're still going to heaven anyway. Everybody wins. If they're wrong, well, that's a big cost, Right? People who don't take their faith seriously, of course, they would argue that if they didn't take their faith seriously, they really weren't predestined. So I mean, it's all kind of crazy, but you get this thing where they're, you know, there's no way you can use salvation. There's grace is so great, there's no way you can fall away, and nothing can separate us from God. Well, nothing can separate us from God, but our hearts, I believe, teaches that we can turn away from God. They would argue with that. Again, this is the big argument and debate. We don't get into it heavily here. I just think, whatever you think, predestined or not, serve God and put him first and honor him and do the right thing. Because in not doing so, your life is going to stink, which is what they would say. Well, it just means your life's not going to bless. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think that there's, there is a certain thing where Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If there's no chance that you could lose on this, why would there be any fear and trembling? So I don't see their version. I get pieces of it. Here's my version of what they're talking about uh, with predestination. I think when he's talking about things that have been predestined, God's plan of salvation has been set in stone, okay? That is what is predestined, that he would have the Jewish people and the Messiah would come. All, it wasn't like God doesn't make this up as he goes along, right? That's not his management style. It is, however, my management style. I, <laughs> it's terrible. I do make things up as I go along. People always ask me, what's your five-year plan? I don't know. You know, because I, the reason I don't is because any plan is so filled with assumptions, I think it's virtually worthless. That's my personal opinion. That's why I don't run General Electric. I don't know. I'd probably be more successful if I had more detailed plans. My plans are pretty simple, you know? 
Let's be better tomorrow than we were today. Let's win more people this year than we won last year. Let's advance. Let's, I mean, opportunities pop. That's why I always say, don't follow your dreams. Follow your opportunities. Follow the doors that God opens for you. Because there's stuff that happens, opportunities that happen to us, even this year that we didn't even see a year ago. You know, even this thing with like Hazem with this outreach to the Muslim thing. That wasn't part of our plan last year. I never heard of the guy. So I'm, I'm much more, let's see what happens. Let's have a general point, but I don't get into this. Anybody ever do a business plan for a business? Anybody? Okay. As soon as you're done with that, throw it away. Because it's totally worthless. The banker wants to see it because he just wants to make sure you're thinking. But as soon as you're done, you just toss it because it's worthless. The entire thing is based on assumptions you don't know if they're true or not that's why they're called assumptions i don't spend time with my staff and lots of churches do this i groan i hate it maybe when i'm dead and gone and <laughs> these young guys take over maybe you'll have these meetings <laughs> it's 18 hours a day locked in a room coming up with our five-year plan god bless you i'll be in heaven laughing okay <laughs> and just saying thank god i wasn't there for the meeting that's all i'll say now, there's a very successful, that's what they absolutely believe that's what needs to be done. I don't, because it's all assumptions. How do you know what's going to happen? I have no idea how many people are going to come to crisis next year. I have no idea where the economy is going to be. I don't know how generous you're going to be or not going to be. Everything is all assumptions, right? Anyway, but that's Mark Gunger's version of management. God is a little more advanced, all right? And the reason his can be so advanced is it's not based on assumptions. He knows what's going to work, all right? So he didn't just, you know, oh, gee, let's start the nation of Israel and, oh, yeah, I guess let's have a Messiah while we're at it. And then, oh, well, no, I guess, I guess, you know, the Jews don't want it. Let's go find non-Jews. All this stuff was thought out ahead of time. This entire plan was predestined. And I believe there are specific people that come along that God does predestine to do one thing or the other. I do agree with that. I just don't think that in general... Uh, that is the plan that involves everybody. I still think at the end of the day, free will is what determines what's going to be the outcome for your soul and not some predestined lot that you don't know about one way or the other. I mean, I, don't, I, I know, that, again, they have all different versions of this. Uh, I don't know what really motivates these guys to go preach or to give money or something. I mean, if everybody's already predestined, one thing's going to happen. Why would you go preach? Right? But then Paul absolutely talks about it. Like, we got to get the message out. In the middle of this, he'll start talking about, man, we, we got to get the message out and preach. And talk. So, so anyway, it just depends. Now, the other extreme of Armenianism is that, you know, if, if you're walking with Jesus and, and you get mad and you kick the dog and Jesus comes back, you're going to go to hell. You know, because you might lose your salvation. Efforts. And there's, there's actually an extreme version of that. Holiness preachers used to be like that, right? That's a, you, and it's more about doing things. You know, you don't want to be playing cards. Because what happens if Jesus comes back and you're in the middle of a card game? You know, because they thought that was a horrible sin to play cards, right? Or, or dancing. You can't go dancing because that leads to sex. All right? That's why Baptists don't have dances and, uh, and stuff like that. So, or roller skating was a sin because it was too much like dancing. Although that would be really hard to have sex. <laughs> it's rather impressive, actually. <laughs> so, you know. So... What if Jesus comes back and you're roller skating and then your soul's going to be like, and these guys who preach like this, they're actually let people, you know, anybody raised like that? We used to have services that almost every Sunday, half the congregation would come forward to get saved. Why? Because I got unsaved during the week. You know, I, did, I went roller skating or something happened or I got mad and so I didn't come the only pray and the next week, you need to come down and get right with God. <laughs> I know, I need, and they're getting saved every week. At some point, I'm thinking, what is, something's wrong here. What is this? You can't possibly need to get saved every week. What is this about, right? So that's the extreme of that, okay? While I do believe it's possible to lose out, my own version, if you disagree, that's fine. Everybody has their own version of this. I think you can eventually lose out for, with God, but I think it's a lot harder than most people think. Seriously, God is incredibly patient. Everybody say patient. He's really, really, really patient. If you doubt it, just read you know, kings, first and second kings. I mean, for hundreds of years, God's threatening. I'm going to kill you guys if you don't stop it. I'm going to kill you if you don't stop it. And you know, the next guy comes up, I'm going to kill you if you don't stop it. Really, halfway through it, I'm yelling, just kill them already. Get over. What is taking so long? Because these people were bad, bad. You think you're bad? You ain't nothing. 
These people were evil, wicked. Cra- These were people who were supposed to be followers of God. Some of them were getting caught up sacrificing their children in, in, in sacrifices to idols and stuff. And they were, I mean, they were so bad. And then it took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before God finally brought the hammer down on him. Apparently, he's very patient. Be thankful I am not the Lord. I would kill us all. All right? So anyway, so that's, you know, I, I, I don't think uh, the extremes of either one is particularly helpful, my own personal opinion. And again, people have different versions of it. Okay, so anyway, here's where we are now. Uh, he says, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if he's going to work everything out for you, if he's already got this plan planned out for you, you know, how bad can your life be? Well, you can suffer a lot, but in the end, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Why would God sacrifice his son and then turn around and ignore those who put the faith in their son? He's not going to do that. His greatest sacrifice was right there. He's, you know, at some point, it's you, you, you follow your investment. Does that make any sense? You know, you don't invest in a big building, and then as soon as something starts going wrong, I don't want to put any more money in it. <laughs> well, no, you got a lot of money in the building. You keep investing. God keeps investing in you. There's a great sacrifice that was put out for you and for me. And God is always there and constantly reinvesting uh, in us and being there for us. I am so hot. I am sweating. Is anybody else hot? Is it just me? Really? Like I'm, I'm, like, I'm like menopausal up here. <laughs> That's actually how we say, I tell people on my, people ask me about Wisconsin. I say, you say well, how, how can you afford all the heating bills. I said, we just, we fill the room with menopausal women and, uh, and save money. A, <laughs> they bring their own personal furnaces everywhere they go. It's a joke. All right. I don't know, like, holy moly. All right. Um, who will bring any ch- charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Clearly, this is the opposite version of the, you know, you're going to lose your salvation in five seconds, right? God is there for you. He didn't put something in you that you can just blow away with an improper sneeze at some point, all right? Uh, so we, we don't, again, we're trying to stay somewhere in here. I just don't like the wings, the extremes on either side. Uh, I'm convinced, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, nor any other power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And everybody said, amen. amen. So praise God for that. All right. Yeah, just a little bit further, he starts warning them, uh, be careful or you can be cut out of this deal. So, see, he hits both sides, right? A lot of it has to do with how we approach. Again, I just think it's a lot harder. I don't think it's a matter of once you've asked Jesus in your heart, you can turn into an axe murder. I don't think that happens uh, that way, uh, whatever. So, okay. Now, Paul starts anguishing over Israel, and he starts talking about Israel again, and uh, and this is the part, uh, this whole thing, just, uh, yeah, yeah. honestly, I, I don't understand the book of, the, the Roman church, oh, he's writing to the Romans, this, this is way far away, this is the farthest place he's reached out, away from Jerusalem and all this stuff, and there was Judaism everywhere, and, but it's interesting, when he writes to Philippi, he doesn't talk much about Judaism, when he writes to the Bereans, he doesn't talk much about Judaism, when he writes to the Corinthians, he doesn't talk much about it, Ephesus, there's a lot easier for us to understand, already so much of this letter has been him talking to Jews about understanding the difference between Jew, uh, what happens in Christianity, and he's about to go off on it again, so I don't know, the only thing I can figure is apparently this church has got a lot of Jewish believers in it, 
It's the only thing I can think. The only other epistle that has as much reference to Judaism, more than reference to this, is probably the letters of the Hebrews, which Hebrews are Jews. <laughs> okay? Even James, which was directly written to just Jewish Christians, doesn't have as much reference to Judaism as he's already had in this letter, and now he's going to go jump in it some more. He says, I tell you the truth, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. What he's saying is, if I could, I would go to hell if they could be saved. I would willingly go to hell myself, cut away from Christ, spend eternity in hell if they could be saved. This is how much he loves his own people. Um, da, 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 da. Theirs is the adoption, talking about Israel, it's the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. What he's saying is all of this, the fat side of the Bible, all of this is God dealing pretty much with one group of people. And now he's saying to a great degree they're missing it because by this point it's becoming clear that the number of Jews that are turning to Christianity is very small. Uh, and by and large, and then it gets to the point where it's hardly any and even to this day, the bulk of Christianity are non-Jews. Judaism, in, in, by and large, Jews do not accept. There, there's always some. There's uh, Messianic Jews all over the place, that Christian Jews. But by and large, it's the exception, not the rule. So he's saying, man, he says, how, how sad is this? Because they, they had all these promises. All this was based around them. He says, it is not as though God's word had failed, though, is what he's saying. And then he starts using this analogy that, because, you know, this is kind of confusing to him. How, why all this? And then he starts to really explain to some degree that a true Jew isn't a Jew. It's someone who has the faith of a Jew. He's already talked about this before. True uh, circumcision isn't about what's in your flesh, but what's in your heart, okay? Uh, and then he gets into this case. What he says for not all who were, are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, all, they're not all Jews. What do you mean they're not all Jews? Uh, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Wait a minute. From a Jewish perspective, that's exactly what it is. We are of our father Abraham. Remember Jesus told him? Because he'd get on the Jews' cases, the leaders, says, how can you, we're, we're the children of Abraham. He said, you're your father the devil. He said, don't claim you're the children of Abraham, God could raise children of Abraham from these stones, you know. So they had put all their marbles and all their everything in the fact that they were just of the bloodline of, uh, of Abraham. Jesus challenged that, and Paul is pointing out very clearly here, that's not enough. You just being born a Jew is not enough. Uh, and, he's, and what he's saying is, in, in really in a sense, not even everybody who's from Abraham is Jewish which is very odd. He says, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring, offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. If you're confused, say amen. All right, so now, this is what you know. By the way, when you get to portions of the scripture that don't make any sense to you, just move on. Seriously, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I don't understand. I, don't, I just don't wrestle with it. I do as hard as I can. I look at it, and after a while, I just give up and I move on. There's a lot more that I got to worry about that I do understand. Somebody say amen. All right, there's all stuff. There's a lot of clear stuff in here that we need to do. And then every once in a while, they go off. And usually, whenever it gets confusing is when they get into this thing of reconciling the Old and the New Testament. He has to do it. How do you explain the reconciliation? How does we get from here to here? How come this doesn't apply like the law of Moses to here anymore? And he spent several times in his letters explaining it, and he keeps going there, and now he's going to go there again. What he's talking about, he says, uh, so not everybody, everybody who's from Abraham is Abraham's child. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of the physical descent, they were God's children, but the children of the promise. Let's take a look at Abraham. God tells Abraham, 
I am going to give you a son. You are going to be the father of a multitude. Your descendants will be more than the sands of the sea. I mean, he's just, you know, oh, this incredible thing. So Abraham is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and ain't nothing happening. The girl never gets pregnant. Now, we don't know if it's her problem or his. No, it's got to be her problem because we find out what happens in a minute. So for some reason, she can't give birth. I get pregnant, but God says it's going to be through her. And so it finally, at some point, uh, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, look, you need to have a kid. God says you're going to have a kid. Maybe it's, you know, maybe just meant, you know, do somebody else. So he says, why don't you have sex with my maidservant and have a baby with her? And as most men would do, he said, okay. Okay. So he goes and does the horizontal mambo with this chick, all right? That's, that's, that's the servant of Sarah. So they have this baby, and God says, what are you doing? That's not, I said, through Sarah. And everyone said, well, wait a minute, ain't nothing happens. I said, through Sarah. So eventually, Abraham's 100 years old. She's like 90 or whatever it is. Pretty much even past the <laughs> menopausal heat stroke time, okay? Uh, it's over. This is, they don't know what God saw, but they still stood. God said he's going to do it. God said he's going to do it. God said he's going to do it. And then that's why he's the father of faith. He hung in there, even though it looked like it was impossible. What you could see would say, you're an idiot. Give it up. He wouldn't give it up. He would go out and he'd look at the stars at night and he would count all the stars and God would remind him, my descendants are going to be more than that. And at some point, the promise becomes more real to him than his experience. That's when you know you're really in faith. That's when you know something's happening into you. When you start to believe what you can see more than you can believe what you can see. When God's promises become more real to you than what you're actually experiencing. Wow. That's when God shows up and starts kicking butt and taking names. So Abram, finally, he's at this total place. God shows up. The lady at 80 or 90 or whatever is, becomes pregnant. Whoa! That took everybody. Can you imagine seeing her in the grocery line? <laughs> well, she got under her... And it can't be a baby. She's 90 years old, but yeah, it's a baby. So anyway, he gives birth. she gives birth to Isaac. It is through Isaac that the promises of God are going to come and eventually the nation of Israel. Okay, the other one, the other child is rejected. And actually, you can trace it back, uh, in fact, uh, to, the, uh, to the Arab nations. And to this day, the Arab nations are trying to kill Isaac, if you will. Okay, that creates all this problem that, in a sense, wouldn't exist had he not gone down this route, road. And in fact, that's why, and, and Muslims will tell you, they believe in Abraham. They trace back to Abraham. They believe their father is Abraham, just like the Jews do. That's, that's so crazy. They both go back to the same place. That's why they both do circumcision. Jews and Muslims both do circumcision because Abraham instituted circumcision. And it's really fascinating how that, and now ever since then, there's been all this uh, animosity uh, that came along, and it's wild. So anyway, he's pointing out that the real problem, it wasn't just because it came from Abraham, because Abraham had a child that the promises didn't come to. What came were the people who believed God. It came through the promise. So he's using that analogy to say just because you came from Abraham doesn't mean anything if you don't do it by faith. Because this is by faith that all this stuff happens. All right? For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Which had a hard time for them believing, but that's what happened. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. If you don't know what they're talking about, say amen. Alright, so here's what he's talking about. Now, then uh, Isaac's uh, wife now is Rebecca. And it says her children were conceived at the same time. How's that possible? They're talking about twins. She had twins. Okay, so they were conceived at the same time. You don't have one twin and six months later get the other one. Okay, it all happens at the same time. Yet before the twins, see now we see the backup, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's 
purpose in election might stand, which is this idea of predestination, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, uh, so we're getting in the weeds now of this you know, predestination concept. Uh, what he's saying here is God shows uh, along the promise this idea of predestination because even though she has the twins, God speaks uh, and says the older one, the younger one will serve the older one, which is totally upside down. That's not the way this works, okay? Being the firstborn is everything in this culture. And some cultures of this, to this very day say like that, but back then, I mean, it's just the oldest kid, oldest son got it all. Everybody, you know, begged for <laughs> scraps from there. But the oldest kid, man, that was it. The oldest son, not even the daughter, the oldest son. So he's going to say it's going to be the younger one that's going to serve, or the older one's going to serve the younger one, which puts everything on his head. Uh, uh, and he says, uh, and that's what happens. What happens is uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, Esau's born first, then Jacob is born. Later, uh, Esau comes in one day, he's really, really hungry. He's working in the field. Uh, he, the Bible says he's a skilled hunter, which makes him a Nimrod. And if I, you know what a Nimrod means? It means a skilled hunter. The other meaning is that you're a dork and an idiot. I first realized this understanding when I was up in the UP last year in Watersmeet, Michigan. And then the sign says, home of the Nimrods. I'm thinking, who would put that up on a sign like that? You know. <laughs> Can you imagine being in a high school? Hey, we're with the Nimrods. Oh, man. I mean, I'll beat you up, right? So a Nimrod, actually, if you look it up, is a skilled hunter. Definition two is you're an idiot. So uh, anyway, personally, I'd change the name if I was in Watersmeet. But, uh, so anyway, so uh, Esau comes in. He's so hungry. Jacob has some lentil stew. And he says, man, give me something to eat. I'm so hungry. He says, I, I want to give you some if you sell me your birthright. Give it up. And Esau says, oh, what do I care about some stupid birth? I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. So this idiot gives up his birthright to be number one so he can get a, a bowl of stew, lentil stool. <laughs> and, and that's the whole thing between Esau, Jacob and Esau. Now Jacob, it goes on, it's all rather complicated, but Jacob now, he's the one. Jacob now becomes Israel and becomes the children of Israel. <laughs> which all the promises coming through this. So he, number one, he talks about the difference between the promise, and then next he talks about God's intentional hand in doing things. Now, I believe God does do intentional things like he does here. Uh, he's about, we'll pick it up next week. We'll, he's going to talk about uh, Pharaoh, how God had uh, predestined Pharaoh to do what he did. Uh, you know, so there are specific things. Again, I believe the plan is what is predestined. I think God sometimes does predestine. He certainly predestined John the Baptist and Jesus and all these other things. Uh, I just think aside from that, as we're going to see as we continue reading that Ar Armenian read and came to the conclusion that it's not all just wrapped in stone, that free will doesn't play a place. Uh, Calvinist belief, grace is so strong it overcomes and mutes this idea of free will. Uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of grace, but whatever position you come down on, the truth is most people wind up somewhere here. There's very few people on either side that are way out here. These are the really crazy ones. Most of us line up here. Whatever side you line up, it's, it's fine. Uh, I don't really care one way or the other. But uh, So anyway, so you can certainly see from a Calvinist point of view that these verses, they love these verses. Because it's really talking about God's picking one particular person and his sign of predestination and all this other kind of stuff. Okay, but it's a little bigger than that. In fact, even where he says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Uh, that's a quote from the last book in the Old Testament and it's talking about the nations of Israel and the nation of the Edomites. The Edomites later, the descendants of Esau, also become a problem and uh, persecute and attack Israel. And they have this animosity that's going between the two of them. So anyway, uh, so that's where we'll pick it up next week when we talk about this. Uh, and we'll continue. As we, and, it's, and it gets a little bit clearer. I guess it's not actually as painful as I thought it would be. <laughs> just, but it kind of you gets your head because you think of all these million different versions of how to explain this. Y'all understood it, right? You kind of got a basic idea, everybody? Yep. Are you still confused? Anybody else confused? I'm so sorry if I confused you. Just go back as you were, all right? But, uh, 
hopefully we made a little bit of a sense of that uh, in this big debate. I, don't get into a debate with anybody. But don't argue. This is one thing. You, what's the point of arguing? If everything's predestined, then it is. You arguing about it, you're going to change anything. Right? And I always tease my hardcore Calvinist friends. I say, I disagree with you, and I can't help it. I was predestined to disagree with you. And, uh, which they don't find funny at all. No sense of humor, these people. I don't know. So anyway, just don't, don't get out. It's, it's just, it's fine. Some people, it actually helps their faith believing, look, because I believe this the way it is, is what makes me disconnect with God. That's fine. Whatever makes it, it work for you. Don't attack somebody else's faith because maybe, yeah, and we don't do that here. We just don't. We don't, you know. Uh, whatever side of this, I tend to lean on more on this side, others lean this side, but whatever side, don't argue about it, don't fight with each other about it, but just try to explain where they're coming from. And we'll do that a little bit more as we get into this and it'll start becoming a bit clearer, okay? Everybody good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your kindness. Help us to grow from your word, uh, get a better understanding of the scripture so that we can understand it when we read it and grow from it. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys.